1: Hey everyone, David Kern here. Before we get to this week's episode, I just want to tell you about the Searcy Institute Atrium program. It's a one-year program that explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. The Atrium now features five different courses, and participants can choose any one course or sign up for multiple courses. These courses include our very own Heidi White, our very own here on The Close Reads, talking about classical pedagogy. And then we've got Andrew Kern talking about classical rhetoric. Matthew Bianco talking about Plato's Republic. And then from Wes Callahan, you can choose either The Divine Comedy or The Iliad. So there are great options for anybody who wants to dig into any of these subjects. If you'd like to learn more, head over to circeinstitute.com atrium. Again, that's circeinstitute.com atrium. And once again, those courses are Heidi Waite on Classical Pedagogy, Andrew Kern on Classical Rhetoric, Matthew Bianco on Plato's Republic, or Wes Callahan on The Divine Comedy or The Iliad. One more time, that link is circeinstitute.com slash atrium. And with that, let's get to this week's conversation. Hello, I'm David Kern.
2: I'm Heidi
0: Waite. And I'm Tim McIntosh.
1: And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on in which we are discussing Walter Wengren's the book book the book of the dun cow (sighs) one day i'm gonna do an intro and i'm not gonna stumble over myself but today is not that day
0: you rarely you stumbled last time and this time that does not make it's not even a pattern oh thanks it's not even a pattern
1: i'm encouraged thank you thank you Uh, that was yeah tim tim and heidi are always ready to bring some words of encouragement we're a very supportive bunch i think is that fair True. That's
0: super fair. What a thoughtful thing to say.
1: Speaking of supportive bunches, the book of the Duncow, am I right? I love this
2: book.
0: I'm crazy about it. I can't wait to talk about it.
1: So, um,
0: I'm excited too.
1: <laughs> so, this is a 1978 novel by Walter Wangren Jr., um, presumably loosely based on parts of the Canterbury Tales. Is thats that, is that I'm, I'm assuming that is, is that actually a fact? How you're nodding? Yeah, Did I mean he say I haven't that? finished the
2: book. I've never read it before, so I'm only I've only read part one. But yeah, it's it seems to be a retelling of the Nun's Priest Tale from Canterbury there's Tales. There's just definitely
1: not enough Wife of Bath in this book to really be based on the Canterbury <laughs> Tales
2: or the Miller's or Tale. We need more. yeah. There's no
1: Millers yeah. that I can tell so far. Well, we'll talk about um, that. was will talk. A we'll get into the book
2: for all y'all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: yeah. Exactly. So we're going to discuss part one this week, part two next week, then part three. It's weird how that works that way. And then we're going to finish it up and then do a Q&A. So over the next five weeks, we are going to discuss this book. Um, after this, we're going to do A Gathering of Old Men by Ernest Gaines. Um, and then we'll see how much time we have left. That should leave us time for one more book before the year's end. And we've got a couple to choose from that we had discussed. Uh, so we'll give you some information on that. Of course, uh, we also have on patreon a new book coming up tim this book that's coming up on patreon is a little book that because it's written by a russian is one of your heart books <laughs> hello just a little <laughs> book uh-huh. yeah. a little book um we've already done crime and punishment now we're gonna do that other one you love that other one of the other ones you love. We're going to do Anna Karenina on Patreon. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't signed up for Patreon and you want to hear Tim virtually faint every two weeks, <laughs> then sign up and join us. I'm um, hiding my corset before any
0: <laughs> podcast.
2: <laughs> also, it has the. Somebody, somebody in marked that down as a
0: quote that Tim who's said.
2: Who's the most like Tim? It has a Tim
1: Anna Karenina. Clone.
2: Yeah. Yes, the book with Anna Levin. Karenina is the
1: character most like Tim.
2: It has I, I, the character most like Tim portrayed in the novel.
0: I know, I know She's what she said. the best. <laughs> hey, Heidi, thank you. You're my favorite podcast partner.
2: Thank you very much. I think I deserve that. I've earned that.
0: <laughs> I had, I, I, have told Heidi and I think David, I told you also off the air that I had a girlfriend in my early thirties. End of story. Anna Karenina. I had a girlfriend in my early (laughs) thirties and she read Anna Karenina and she kind of put it down and she said, you remind me so much of Levin. And I said, when can you marry me? Mm -hmm. It really was. I mean, it was like you, it was one of the compliments of my life. True. So so she saw you for, she saw you
1: for who you are.
0: Exactly. Yes. This needs to be a play. Why have you not written this as a play yet? I wonder if there's enough in there to make it a play. That's kind of an interesting idea. It's a good scene. Just go from there. See what happens.
1: All right. So we're going to discuss Anna Karenina on Patreon. So if you haven't signed up for that, be sure to do so because this is, I think is gonna be a great conversation. I mean, it starts with a great book, right? And that is one of the all timers. And it's a book that all three of us have a a lot of um, affection for, I guess. (laughs) Although I don't think that, I don't know if I like any book as much as Tim likes Anna Karenina. Heidi might not not even like the Odyssey as much as Tim likes Anna Karenina.
2: Ooh, ooh. (laughs) I don't know. Careful.
1: Oh, okay. Sorry. (laughs) 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 Well, we are here this week, though, to discuss the book of the Duncow. Mm -hmm. Do we need to discuss the Canterbury Tales element of this or should we... What do you think? We haven't talked... We didn't bring this up ahead of time. We didn't have any discussions about whether we were going to talk about that. I'm, I'm curious what you guys think in terms of whether we need to
0: Tim. I would love to talk about that. To be honest, this is the first time that I've heard about this comparison.
1: Hello? Uh, <laughs> Hello? Hello? You <laughs> he gave us like three seconds. <laughs> 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 Heidi, um, do you, you were nodding your, your head when I mentioned that that, comparisons seem to be there um do what do you think do we need to discuss this i mean tim tim wants to know more about it so do you want to give a 30-minute lecture on the comparisons between a
2: 30-minute lecture on the comparisons well since i have not finished the book of the dun cow i cannot completely vouch that it's a perfect retelling and there's some differences already uh it seems to be based no wives of bath yes um well and Chaucer's version was based on an earlier fable coming from Aesop as well. Um, And so, this is a story with a long and rich literary history. I would rather not give it away, I think, because I'm sure there's some twists and turns coming. But for people who are interested in tracing the literary heritage, you know, this this book is just – part of the seems to be just part of the tradition so no i don't think we need Hmm. to um talk about it in order to understand the book but it's definitely a really cool thing and i i love this book so far like i said i've never read it before but i'm picking out so many things from the middle ages and the mythologies there's like norse mythology in here and there's I, there's just so, so many threads from the great tradition mm-hmm. that are weaving into this story. And every time I see mm-hmm. one, I'm like, my eyes are popping out of my head. I love it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tim, have you read this before? I've never no. read the book before. No. Yeah, so for all three of us, this is a book that is is the first time. And one of the reasons we did it is because so many of y'all who are listening are big fans of it. We kept seeing it pop up when we put a call out there for uh, suggestions, you know, a, a year ago, I guess, almost, and this book pops up a, a number of times. So that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do it. It seems like it was, it's a hard book for a lot of you. Tim, how do you love this book so far? Your thoughts.
0: Mm, I am going to totally admit that I had a hard time getting into the book. um And what was I kept... holding you back?: The prose. To be totally honest, I felt like the prose was kind of this mashup of mythical style prose, kind of grandiose, and also like a little bit folksy. Like and um and it also just felt really episodic. Okay, part of the the problem for me is that I read the blurbs on the back, and people, I mean, high praise from the New York mm-hmm. Times, the National Book Award winner in 1980. By the way, do you know what category it won in? Science fiction. Mm. Science fiction for Book of the Duncow. Okay, so just that's just worth mentioning. Um <laughs> The Los Angeles Times, the Saturday Evening Post, Washington Post Book World, like all of the heavies come out and they're giving this book high praise and I'm reading it. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? I am really, I'm not getting something here. Did, Clearly, that, I'm the did, you, did it click at some point? At the end of the section that we read for today, it clicked in. I was like, okay, this marriage has taken place and it seems like, okay, here's the other thing. I kept waiting for the great evil to show up because the front blurb is the struggle between good and evil. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay where's the great evil? But we're 76 pages into it. And I think we've had a couple of references to the great evil that's coming.
2: Like the worm and the weird egg that has the that hatches Chanticleer. That's not evil
0: enough for you. You want not to clear well, The other really, No, no, no. we not really get to I'm sorry. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, we get mentions of cockatrice, but there's no
2: it hasn't, he hasn't shown yet. Up yet. arrived PTSD. yet.
0: Yeah, that's true. Okay, the PTSD, absolutely. And but I think the PTSD part of what got me hooked in was that the PTSD was this really great foreshadowing for what is the great evil. So I you know what I mean. Like, I was like, oh, wow, I really this is really bad I PTSD. Yep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm it's, so it's
2: freaked like, out right now by this creepy worm who makes a man give birth to his own
0: evil self, child. Ugh. Wait, well, did it, I miss that? Did I, like, is that did already?
1: You, did you skip the chapter where the other rooster Sex. lays its own egg? Lays its that own has...
2: egg that turns into
0: cockatrice? Did I miss this? How did I miss this? I don't know. It's chapter... I thought uh, that that kind of... I read the first page of the next section that we were not supposed to read, and I was like, oh, here we go. Now it's on. It's chapter five. How did I miss this, you guys? This is like the best misreading since Rebecca. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was just... The best neglected reading since Rebecca.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Senex is the other rooster from across the way and they didn't know about each other. And he is in despair because he doesn't have, he hasn't born any sons to continue his name. And then he gives birth he like hatches his own egg, which turns out to be half rooster, half worm with serpent. And that's why that's what the other creatures are running from. And that's
0: why that hen freaks out. I totally pieced together that's what they're running from, and that's why the hen has freaked out. I got that by the last chapter that we read, but I kept thinking like, okay, all of this is foreshadowing for some horrific thing. And the thing that it was foreshadowing is not foreshadowing. You're telling me we actually got a glimpse of it in chapter five, and in some, for some reason, I missed that. You read four and then read six. Have you... Here,
1: I would like to recommend uh, a tool for you. Reading chat, reading in order. <laughs> and a, not book, a bookmark. <laughs> uh,
2: a quitter stick. I you need one of these. Yeah. The
1: quitter stick, yeah. yeah yes. Quitter stick. Yeah, because then you could stick it when you finish four. You could stick it there in five. And, and then, then you, you wouldn't accidentally right start at six.
0: When you the right, pick, pick up the book. That's what bookmarks are for.
1: Yeah. Unless your children take the bookmark out of the book... And then you were lost. Especially and then you if might as you as well have like
2: some kind of evil child that's, you know, like half rooster, half dragon. They would totally
1: ruin <laughs> yeah.
0: your bookmark. Anyway, does that help do you think that would have helped solve your problem? I think that would have helped solve my problem. Because some I of mean it. like I said, I was waiting for it. <laughs> the blurbs are all about it. And I'm kind of like, man, we've got like we've got a storm we've got some we've got a rat if it, in other words if it showed up at 25 pages which in fact it did instead
1: of 76 pages you'd have felt better about the evil yes i would have mm-hmm. got it got it okay. yes need more have.
2: evil like more cowbell we need more evil yeah, we need More it.
1: cowbell more evil yeah. <laughs> so heidi what do you love about this book <laughs> I mean, Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not like, what do you love about this book? But you were very enthusiastic about it. I'm so
2: enthusiastic. I am. I love this book. I like, it's completely unexpected. I had no idea what it was about. It just has like a rooster on the cover. And I kind of had in my mind that it was going to be a little bit like animal farm. Um, Mm -hmm. but that was a purely subconscious assumption. So then I get this like incredible, uh, microcosm of the entire medieval world played out between these two roosters and i'm like this is awesome i love it so it's just obvious it's incredibly well researched um even down to like the name of the dog Mundo mundokani means dogish world it has like a rich history like it's just really cool so i think my favorite thing so far is just the simplicity of the story against the backdrop of the complexity of the medieval cosmology that's being kind of played out. And even if you don't know it, you feel it, right? Even if you're not sure exactly what's being referred to, there is kind of this uh, otherworldly, this vast kind of epic quality to the novel without it being... But still, like just very simple, this like really simple creative story about this. Yeah, on the animal. surface, it
1: seems like a fable. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah the first hint we get of that medieval cosmology that you're talking about is the notion that the uh, the world is the center of the universe and not the sun. It's a geocentric universe. The more accurate worldview that the world is the center of the universe mm. and not the sun. <laughs> Right. Um, Tim, where do you stand in heliocentrism versus geo- geocentrism, just generally speaking?
0: This is such a loaded question. This is such a loaded I'm question. So um, I'm so glad you answered that way. I got to be honest. Um, The heliocentric – I'm a heliocentric guy. <laughs> I feel like if you are not part of like this kind of like backroom conversation that's happening at Circe – and you're like tuning in to close reads for the first time you're like tracking with the conversation. Oh, this is really fun. And then all of a sudden you're like, wait, what? Like we're like, we're talking to people who still believe that the earth is the center of the solar system. And I feel like there's a little, can I do a little like background on this? I'd be sure. (laughs) Andrew's uh, uh, David's dad is really curious to kind of rehabilitate, I'm going to say, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys, a medieval cosmology as a way of kind of really breathing life into all of the liberal arts, not just the grammar, the logic, and the rhetoric, but also all seven of the liberal arts. And those other four liberal arts, again, like I'm, I'm, trying to account from what Andrew has kind of said to me privately, Um, those other four liberal arts, help me, David, astronomy, uh, music, what are the other two? Um, They are kind of heavily reliant upon this kind of harmonious vision of the world, which is kind of a, of the universe, which is a pre Copernican view of the world. And so I think as a kind of, both playful and serious endeavor. Some people within the Circe world, Circe, the host of this podcast, are kind of a little bit curious about like, what would it look like to go back to a um, geocentric vision of the universe? Even in, so if you're just tuning in, I think you'd be like, Oh, so you guys like wholesale reject science and like the advancements that have been made since you know during Copernicus and Galileo's time. And I want to encourage people to like, No, it's actually a lot more complicated than that. I, I don't think people are like hostile to the idea that we live in a heliocentric solar system.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe the question of. The solar system is the part that changes the conversation. That said, I think that the two that you forgot were—what did you say? Geometry and arithmetic.
0: Yeah, I said. Yeah, I did not. I did not say those geometry and arithmetic. Those are the other two. Um,
1: I mean, it's kind of a joke. Um, among certain circles, the geocentrism versus heliocentrism thing. But it depends on what you uh, mean by center of the universe you know, and also a number of other things and also worldview. Um, but we don't we're not here to talk about that. But that was an example of us of, of the medieval concepts, a medieval worldview showing up right away in this book. I mean, that was like from the get go. Right. That we see that. What, what else do you see, Heidi? Um, that, well, that lucky it, for
2: you, I made a list. So uh, I
0: thought you mostly might be done hiding. <laughs> is it a chart?
2: It's not a chart. It's just oh, okay. jottings in my, my notebook. Um, but it might become a chart. The day is young. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So let's start. I'm so with glad the, we
1: could count on you to, to do it right. to be yourself.
2: So, exactly. so let's start with the title, the book of the Dun Cow. It's an actual book, an ancient book. It's the oldest surviving manuscript in Irish literature. Uh, it's a collection of history, legend, and religious texts from uh, the early-ish Middle Ages, eighth and ninth centuries. Uh, it was, and it's called the book of the Dun Cow because it was written upon vellum, which is made from the hide of a of supposedly a famous mythical dun-colored cow. The story of the cow is that it has inexhaustible milk um, and escaped from a peasant woman who asked it to fill her bucket and the cow gladly filled the bucket. But then um, the peasant woman asked her to fill a sieve. And of course that's impossible. And the cow then escaped in order to kind of, you you know, the statement is, humans with their inexhaustible greed right and so then this mythical creature has to escape and now it's still wandering the countryside in ireland apparently um and the book of the dun cow is so valuable uh that invaders willingly abandon an attack on Irish soil in exchange for the book. Um, and so it has this like really long and rich history. I have no idea why this book is yet. I have no idea yet why this book is titled the book of the Duncal, cow, but I can't wait to find out. Um, Chanticleer and Cockatrice are both um, well-known figures in medieval folk tales and kind of the general mythology of uh would have been common, kind of like the way we might refer to the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. It shows up in many stories and is kind of reinvented with, with over and over again um, in many stories. Um, the Wheel of Fortune is referred to, fortune going around, which comes from Boethius in the early uh, 6th century, the geocentric universe as you said um, Norse mythology talks about the Midgard serpent which is a dragon imprisoned in the earth under Yggdrasil the world tree is constantly gnawing on the roots of the world tree and that will eventually lead to Ragnarok or the end of the world um, so there's just uh, the reference to uh, his crows are really important Um, the church is known for having, he calls his crows, the canonical crows that rule the day, like the the rhythm of the day. Um, the church has seven canonical hours of prayer called matins, laws, prime, terse, sext, nuns, vespers, and compline that's referred to. Um, so there's, and, and kind of this very medieval idea of, The contrast between an orderly existence and a disorderly existence we see with um, how Chanticleer rules his realm with wisdom and in order um, with a celebration of beauty um, uh, and versus... Senex, uh, which is com- who's completely disordered in his rulership of his coop and his brood of hens, and therefore they're un- they're infertile, um, which makes reference to the medieval belief in how the king impacts the land and the necessity of a of it. A- of an orderly um, kind of way of life that's centered around prayer, around the church, around the hours, um, which is symbolized, of course, with the crowing. Um, so, there's just, there's so many things that are just this callback to this ancient way of thinking um, that, uh, and, and I think Walter and Jr. does a marvelous job of drawing us into it so that even if you don't, Consciously know your your kind of your mind is forced to look at it a certain way, so that you enter the world of the story, um, which is an entry into medieval cosmology. Um, and uh, without us being without it, us being like hit over the head with it, right? It's the story that draws us in, and I I just I just love it. That's all I'm going to say right now. I just think it's Heidi awesome.
0: is um did you take pterolite? The Hen Bride of Chanticleer to be a reference to the paraclete?
2: I didn't. The Holy
0: Spirit? Okay. I didn't,
2: but that might be there. But that's actually the name of Chanticleer's wife hen in Chaucer's The Nun's Nosepreet's Tale. So it's a direct Mm. reference to the earlier story. Okay. But there might also be another connection. I meant to look up her name to see what it meant in Latin, because there's a t- yeah. all the names are really significant, and they're all references to Latin. Um, and so, like Senex, just a yes. stock figure. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I didn't look that up, but there. I mean, there might yeah. be a connection with that.
1: Was there a point at which? So it starts out, and you're trying to get a grasp on what this story is right as with any book you're reading it especially the first time you're kind of feeling your way i don't say in the dark exactly but you're kind of trying to figure out what it is that you are experiencing what is this book telling us that it is what is it trying to be all those sorts sorts of questions was there a point at which you felt like you had a sense that of what this book is trying to be like was there a moment where that crystallized for you heidi i'll ask you first and then we'll go to tim just go reverse order of what I did a second ago.
2: I think the first reference to a great evil rising was that moment for me that I thought this is going to become a battle between good and evil. Um, and the another important medieval motif that's in this story is the making of a king motif, which comes up a lot in medieval stories especially in the late medieval and renaissance um what does it mean to be a king what what makes when when what is what is the overlap in the line between the king and the man right and and i see that in chanticleer um he's obviously on a trajectory of growth um, as well as being the hero um and he has all of the problems of medieval kings in the making of a king motif in medieval literature, which is loneliness, um, and uh, uh, kind of a, a uh, not like learning to have a full ownership of his um, of his capacity for greatness, developing a great soul, um, and and I see that in him. So that that when it first talked about the great. Evil rising. That's when I thought, "Oh, this is going to be—I think—a pretty simple story with a lot of really cool accoutrements accompanying it."
1: Tim, I want to ask the same question to you in a second, but there was that line on page five where he's—he's um, he's upset that the chicken is the hen has woke awakened him, and he says, "Ah me, what I could have been in a better place." such a wonderful somebody I should have been. He wept that it would have been a pleasure to look at, but this is the place and this is the me. Look at me and be sad. See me and be sorrowful. No, no, don't look. Um, No one should be burdened with such a sight, a walking sin, but sleep, he wailed. Sleep and be what I can never be. It does my soul good to know that someone is at peace. Sleep. And then he howled like the north wind, marooned. (laughs) Um, When I read that, I th- that was when I felt like, okay, this there's a complexity of character, like the psychological complexity has just been ramped up because he's in one paragraph he reveals so much about himself. Um, at first, it was a little bit off-putting, actually, because it felt like he had this self-awareness that you have to suspend your disbelief in a book like this for that to work. And it took me a little bit of time to suspend my disbelief so that it felt like it could work because what I didn't totally realize was like there's no human characters. You know, the origins of this world are never really revealed or even like all we know is like who the leaders are. Like there's, there's so many structural elements of this world that have not been revealed to us and it takes some getting used to. But then we get the psychological depth of that paragraph. And as you said, there's this idea of the lonely king who's going to sort of become great and he at the beginning feels like to be great he has to have been somewhere else and so right here at the beginning it's setting up for us that whatever journey he goes on is going to be about this place so the place itself is tied to the psychology of our main character and that's like the story right like that's going to be core to the story tim go ahead
0: i I was just going to say i think i did not pick up on I didn't get hooked into the story until right before the wedding when the conversation is happening between Chanticleer and his hen bride. Because at that point, because I think when, when we open the book, Chanticleer is kind of, he's a little bit pitiful, you know, like, what was me? And he's alone. Yeah. He's pathetic. Um, Yeah. He's pathetic. But then this heroic act of saving the mice children from drowning and, um, rescuing and the potential of nurturing this hen. And, and also the conversation that he and his hen bride have in that last chapter of this section is very much a reckoning of, him seeing his rule as an obstacle to intimacy. And she kind of like can see past that and she can kind of like see, and and that the problem of loneliness that you just discussed, David, on chapter five is kind of beginning to be resolved by this hen who can, like is not terrified of him. She doesn't just see the crown on his head um, or the comb, the, the comb on his head, I guess, you know, she sees something, more. She like sees the actual, I'm going to say person. And I, at that point I really started, I was hooked at that point. I was really hooked. Hmm. It took a while, 76 pages or you know, maybe 70. Well, it would have helped days. if you read the six in the middle. Well, I know. And now I can't go back. I can't undo what's done, but I am going to go back and read that reread chapter five and that's, I think, gonna help make a lot more sense of what I wasn't grasping. Tim, uh, here's,
1: I, I think, next time you have a play for us, I'm gonna skip like the third scene, and I'm just gonna r- go be, go back and try to figure out just, just so I can remind you that this happened, <laughs> of how painful it would be to Walter Wang. Yeah, yeah. Um, Heidi, you are either writing a very important letter. You are taking notes on and things about on the things that we're talking about on this book, or you are revising a menu for an upcoming banquet that is very important to you. It's one of those three things, I feel like. Which one is it?
2: It's definitely the latter. I am having a very important banquet (laughs) and finalizing my menu, which is going to be chicken. (laughs) (laughs) That's Um, That's right. Like a guinea (laughs) hen. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, Yeah, I am. I was actually scribbling down notes. I think what I, I did really love, like I said, all of the references to medieval literature, because I am. First of all, I'm like I think the medievals were right about everything and I, I think they're fabulous and I love medieval literature. Um, I also think I loved it because it was um, it, it has this quality of allegory. Um, I was going to ask you guys about this. I find very, very intriguing to me um, and it's a bit mysterious as I'm reading it's, it seems very clear to me that these uh that that this story is kind of reaching into the allegorical realm um and i'm but it's not a very neat allegory it's not like um C.S. Lewis, when you read The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and you're like, this is Jesus, and this is the cross, you know, like, and and that's, that's fine. I like those easy allegories too, especially in a children's book, but this one is more complex, more intriguing, and a little darker. There's this darkness to this story, even from the very beginning with the dog howling and Chanticleer pecking, trying to peck his nose off and him thanking him for it, the dog thanking him for Mm -hmm. it. like that. I was like, what? is this Mm -hmm. like there's just this haunted character like quality to it which is typical of walter wangren jr who seems to be to have been a man with a very deep and haunted soul um from his writings this this one i've not read but i read some of his others and heard him interviewed and Mm.
1: um, and of course he just recently passed away um, a month ago yes yeah, maybe something like that. Maybe yeah. a little bit less even. couple of weeks, yeah. yeah. So interesting that the timing for this came up when it did. We'd planned yeah. to read this a year
0: ago, but... Before we go on, I we don't have to do this, but I'm kind of curious, Heidi. Um, the medieval's got everything right. Like there's part of me... I'm affiliated with the classical education movement because this, the vision of um, education that the classical Christian movement is putting forward. I'm a huge advocate. And I recognize that the roots of that are firmly in the medieval tradition. And so I don't want to, and I totally recognize um, aspects of the medieval vision of the world that are wildly attractive to me. Uh, I feel like I'm going to out myself as like not one of the cool kids in the Christian classical community. I'm just going to do it. Like I, beyond that, I'm just, I just kind of think, yeah. And the like life expectancy for adult male, for an adult male was 46, 47, maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of making these numbers up and you do like manual labor in a field until the day that you like are no longer useful. And then you've got about six months to live and it's probably a pretty painful death, you know, to say nothing of the plight of childbearing women, like all the hazards associated with that, both for children and for mothers. And so, um, I'm just curious and it's a genuine curiosity, like why medievalism? We well, let well, me. I don't.
2: I don't think it's irrelevant because that's what the book okay, is about. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Ahead, and, well, I was just going to say that we can tie on to that. You know, this book trades in the images and the ideas mm-hmm. of medievalism. Clearly, values them, and so it's worth exploring, especially here on this first episode. Why twenty first century people should find medieval notions medieval ideas uh valuable um so like as deeper than just like the what happens in the story the sort of the poetry at the heart of it uh why, why does this why should it still matter
2: right i think that's a great question and i think i mean to to address it without going too deeply in it because you and i've even had this conversation before um that the it's the same, my answer to that would be the same reason why someone looking at the American ideal versus the American lifestyle would say they believe in the American ideal, mm-hmm, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Like,
2: right. So you look at the vision of the founding fathers for this nation, the the orderly attempt to to put representation um, into the system, like all of these enlightenment ideals, which I don't. I don't hold those ideals, but I certainly believe that the founding fathers were casting a vision for something really important, right? And but if you look at the of the lifestyle of the average American, is anybody living up to that ideal? No, of course not. So the medieval lifestyle and the medieval mind are two different things, just as the American lifestyle and the American ideal are two different things. And the more you strive towards the ideal, the more you're formed and shaped by it. Right. And so I think that that's my, that's my answer. I'm not saying I want to go back and die in childbirth so that I can, you know,
0: right. Right.
2: Read a story about Chanticleer from Chaucer. <laughs> but I am saying <laughs> yeah, that read the there first is, edition. there is something exactly. There is something that it offers. Um, and that, that could be, I think, an antidote for much of the fragments short against our ruin um, and modernity that, you know, that's a phrase from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland.
1: That would have been a good one to come up with on the spot,
0: though. <laughs> okay, She just did come up with it on the spot. I was impressed. Can, can, mm. can you um,
1: say more about that, though?
2: Yeah. I mean, even what I talked about with the idea of order, like the proper order of things, which is a big part of the happiness uh, of the hens in the hen house in the story, right? It's because, I mean, it's directly said that the hens are happy in the hen house because Chanticleer never fails to crow the canonical hours, right? And that's a very medieval idea that the, the day and the seasons ought to be and are governed by uh, the church and by the the church year and the church day, and that there's an order that's imposed upon the chaos of the world that 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 you were you just described so beautifully, um, Tim, of of the bleakness or the drabness of um, daily life of mundane life, um, and yet there was this submission to and joy in the orderly nature uh, of the bells of the church that would chime over the medieval village and draw people to prayer. And that's how they didn't have clocks. That's how they would plan their day. Right. And in any medieval town you go there and there's always a church in the center of town um, because that was the center of life. Um, This sacramental kind of, um, daily existence that's run by the sacramental life of the church, um, that created an order and a peace, um, or at least that was the ideal of it. Um, and, and I think that's really lovely. And I think modernity has something to learn from that. If we cannot return, at least we can kind of catch the ideals. We talked a lot about when we did on the Patreon podcasts, we did Lord of the Rings, um, that was one of that was one of tolkien's goals in lord of the rings was to give us a longing for a king by giving us an ideal king in aragorn because the moderns don't know how to long for a king we have no we have no way in our souls no room to long for a king and a king is of course supposed to create within us a longing for Christ and his return. And that link has been severed in our culture. And um and so there's there's multiple authors who are attempting to kind of recover that within the modern imagination that's been so bereft of some of these ideals for so many hundreds of years. Um, does that mean I want that we want to go back to you know serfdom? No, of course not. But to compare that, I think that's comparing apples to oranges. Yeah.
0: For me and We we don't have to talk about this too much longer I think a lot of the things That we Complain about in the modern world Are much more um, a product Of the technological advances Of the industrial revolution Than they are The kind of philosophical Shift that's happened Between medievalism and today Totally willing to acknowledge That the Um, philosophical shift between medievalism and today, let's call it the Enlightenment and and Modernism and Postmodernism, played a part in the kind of technological advances of the Industrial Revolution. Um, But I just think that I, I really do think that there is a way to have your cake and eat it too. And this is like really outing myself as not one of the cool kids. Like I really think that the opportunities afforded people in the contemporary world though often abused and often grossly abused um are things that i think are to be cherished and um refined and i think that like the use of wisdom is the means by which we can kind of separate an ill use of um like modern technologies and the abuse of modern technologies. So I don't know. It's, it's something that I think about all the time. And I kind of, I I find myself, I have friends that are like medievalists, like more than a handful of them and friends of mine that are, I don't know what you're going to, I'll just say modernists, you know, more than a handful of them and maybe it's just because I have like friends on both sides. I'm kind of trying to kind of like harmonize those two. And it, yeah, yeah, that's like a personal project, a pretty important personal project. So I kind of wanted to hear more about like the attraction to medievalism.
1: I I think I, I think it comes down to the notions of. You, I mean, I don't know if we can cover this and this is a much bigger project, as you said, Tim, but they're like, they're, it comes down to notions of order and ways of seeing the world. Like, right. Right. And I think that what people who are medievalists, so to speak, aside for which, which is also a term used for people who are scholars of the middle ages, I like medieval literature, but people who buy into a more medieval worldview, or at least employing elements of medieval worldview in a contemporary setting are saying is that ways of understanding existence and order within that existence were meaningful during the medieval times and that when we threw those out through the enlightenment and the industrial revolution subsequently the industrial revolution we lost something as a culture that kept us from being healthy. Now what we can't get into is what every single one of those things are because it's just not time. Right. So I, I think that I don't, I think that's kind of what we're talking about is like, what are the principles of order um, and wisdom to use the term that you, that, that most help us to the most, the most allow us enable us to be a healthy people and that there is something that the way that the medievals looked at the world, not the way they lived in the world, but the way that they thought about the existence, the way they looked at the world, allowed them to see something deeper than what modernism and the enlightenment allows for in some ways, modernism and the enlightenment opened our eyes to certain things, but it also closed our eyes to things, to wisdom that the medievals had because it was built on centuries and centuries of contemplation being passed down and then dropping that. We, we rejected something that, that could be meaningful. And so what people who are living now that are trying to return to that are saying is how can we take, how can we return to valuing those things that we abandoned and that in abandoning, we cost ourselves something precious. Um, Heidi, would you agree with that?
2: I totally agree with that. And to bring it back to the novel, I think that's a project that this author seems to be interested in too, Um, into drawing the readers into an understanding of the world from Chanticleer's point of view. And Chanticleer's point of view is overtly medieval.
1: But there's also even like form, like the form of the story is medieval itself. Mm, Like it's a way of thinking about everything about about it. It it draws you in formally through medieval forms into medieval ideas Mm -hmm. and says, well, and then it like inherently is asking us or forces us. Inherently we as readers then end up asking, well, what does this have to offer me in 2021? I don't think the book Mm -hmm. is necessarily the allegory question is interesting. We should maybe talk about that before we go today, but first Tim,
0: what were you going to say? Well, I just, I really appreciate your description of kind of like, the draw of medievalism and i want to say i i share it i mean i genuinely do and i think there is something about like the medieval cosmology that is like profoundly nourishing not just the cosmology but the kind of like the life that would flow from that and for me i see like the prevalence of um mental unhealth, and deaths from despair, and suicide. And I kind of draw a pretty clear link between those kind of maladies that are so contemporary, and a kind of loss of this kind of holistic vision of what life is about, and the way that the cosmos operates. The trouble, of course, is that when you're dealing with mental disease and despair, you can't say, I've got a solution. It's a return to the medieval cosmology. You know, that's just like not a practicable solution. Um, and so I think like that sounds like a sort of laughable response, but I think it's actually a pretty reasonable response. The trouble is, um, the, to find that cosmology and Practical approach to life, practical sacramental approach to life, I think, is such a communal and broad. um, It would require so many people to participate that it's not something that can be achieved on an in an individualistic mode or, or 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 accomplished by a single individual. It would have to be kind of like culturally transformative in some ways and to put a bow on it and then we can actually get back to the book. Again, this is part of the reason why I find Circe's project so compelling is because it is about breathing life into this more orderly vision, this more sanctified and um, profound vision of what human life is about. End of discursus. Have you guys (laughs) heard of the book of the Dun Cow by... (laughs) Walter, we should read that one.
1: Do we need to, we're talking about medieval cosmology. Like, how do you think we need to define that a little more? Like what, or do you think we just, just move on?
2: I think that the, the, I think.
1: Is the book doing that?
2: I think the book is doing it. That's what I was just about to say. I think when we talk about cosmology, we're talking about probably the closest, more ordinary word, that would be generally used is, although it's not exactly the same, but in general, the closest ordinary world would be worldview. Um, When we're talking about cosmology, we're talking about a belief in the nature of the entire universe, the way the stars move, the way that, uh, and all of those kinds of things. Um, And, so, when we talk about medieval cosmology, what we're saying is the way that the medievals saw the nature of reality, both physical, spiritual, and relational. Um, and uh, that that is very well laid out in this book. And on the cover of my book... Um, It says there's there's a little quote from the Los Angeles Times that says belongs on the shelf with Lord of the Rings. And that's that's their way of promoting the book. And I think that that's exactly right. Like exactly right. Even though they're two very, very different stories written by two very, very different authors with two very, very different styles. They both are immersive in the way that the medievals saw the world. So in reading this, like kind of this being shot through with magic, their belief that um, the world is an orderly place and is better off as an orderly place with a strong leader in place. And the leader is who brings order. And the leader is supposed to be a picture of Christ. And create a longing for Christ. Also, a world that is that is uh, governed by uh, the church and by spiritual reality. Um, and a world in which there are monsters. and a world in which there's uh, like kind of a magical entrance and transcendent and an ennobling quality about falling in love. Um, these are the these these are kind of hallmarks of the uh, the medieval cast of mind worldview cosmology. Uh, And so in reading this, you are thinking like, and if you accept the terms of the novel, you're thinking like a medieval, same with Lord of the Rings.
1: So while you're talking, I just jumped over to Wikipedia and just typed in medieval cosmology, just because I was curious to see how they would put it, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, how does this strange strangely curated encyclopedia define this very complex thing and there's this interesting paragraph it says in modern thought the orbits of the planets are viewed as the path of those planets through mostly empty space ancient and medieval thinkers however considered the orbs to be thick spheres of rarefied matter nested one within the other each one in complete contact with the sphere above it and the sphere below it um, it goes into that, but it talks about this idea of like nested spheres that and it, it said that mm-hmm. they didn't believe that this, they didn't know that the stars did not change their positions relative to one another. So it was argued that they must be on the surface of a single starry sphere. So one of the things that I find interesting about that and that I think shows up in books like this is that they didn't feel the need to prove the way things worked because partly because they didn't have that capacity yet. So they weren't driven by saying, this is, we can know that this works beyond a shadow of a doubt in this specific way. And so they, it was about there, there was a sort of their cosmology, the way they understood the universe the elements of the universe in relation to one another were driven by the way they thought about order and, and the way they thought about, like all of existence it wasn't about proving that this one thing works in this specific way and when once we know exactly how it works we can be certain of it right like for them the they thought about the world almost like as this one great big metaphor and that's why allegory and things like that and i don't mean i'm that is such an oversimplification mm-hmm. i understand that so it was, whatever medievalist out there is helpful, yelling David. at their super computer helpful. their car um, but I think that that's, and like, so when you, so that brings us to this question of allegory because you see Chaucer, you see Dante, you know, you, you see Milton and they're all coming at it from, uh, they're bringing a unique perspective to a sort of view of the ordered universe that they, at least to some degree shared and they weren't worried about being, they didn't need to tell a story that had like some kind of scientific proof text behind it right so then when you when you think about allegory in terms of this story do you think that we are supposed to read this as an allegory heidi you brought this up earlier um you said it's not like lewis where there's these one-to-one correlations but do these characters represent things and in order to read it the way walter wangren would want us to in a pilgrim's progress sort of way, we're supposed to be able to say, well, this represents this virtue or vice or whatever.
2: I think so. I think that, um, you know, if we are thinking like medievalists here, the medievals believed that there are always four levels of interpretation to any important text. The first is the literal level. So like the story, like this is a story about roosters fighting over the barnyard, right? Like that's the literal level. Um, the second level of interpretation is the moral. What are we supposed to learn from it? Right. Like, are we, we're supposed to be good and not evil, right? Like that's the moral lesson. Uh, the third level is the allegorical level and, in which something always represents something else. Like Chanticleer might Potentially represent the church or the pope or order in the universe or uh, a certain nation, right? That is battling against another evil, and and it's possible within the medieval mind or a particular king, a lock- as in Shakespeare. <laughs> Exactly. A particular King. It could be Henry V, the good King versus the wicked French King, right? Like there's this idea of, and, and within the medieval mind, an allegory could hold multiple interpretations without straining it too far because they were complex people who accepted the complexity of life. And like, and, and, and in that way, that's like a very, also a very modern way of thinking that there's this fluidity to the symbolism. Um, And, and so an allegory could have multiple meanings. Um, and then number four, the fourth level is the anagogical or cosmological interpretation, which is probably the most difficult to explain. Meaning what does the story have to say about the nature of reality itself and the way that the universe works and the way God works and all these kinds of big
1: cosmological questions can you summarize those four um, again for the people who were like oh i should have written that down the f-
2: number one four levels of a medieval interpretation of an important text number one the literal historical level number, number two the moral number three the allegorical and number four is the anagogical or the cosmological as we've been using that word um so those if you apply those which i think you can to this work I think you can to this book. And I think it's probably intentional. Um, Then, then, yeah, there's going to be some kind of allegorical significance to who these, you know, creatures represent or, or, but, but we're not told what they are. Again, that's the fluidity of the symbolism and the allegory there.
1: So before we move on, unless you just created that and synthesized it all by yourself on the fly here, could you have any additional places that people could, could read if, could go to if they wanted to read more about this
2: yeah absolutely my number one recommendation for this by a long shot there's a lot of books written about this but my number one i mean by a mile is c.s lewis's uh, the discarded image it's one of his lesser known works um and the entire point of the book is to summarize medieval cosmology for the modern reader who doesn't get it that's the whole point of the book
1: and if, you're, you, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you've heard it get referenced before. <laughs> so, Yeah. So. yes. Tim, well, go ahead. What are you going
0: to say? I agree with Heidi. That's like, that would be my number one recommendation also. That book can be a little bit intimidating because the number of proper names within it.
1: Also currently, very bad title. Very, very bad cover. Oh, the
0: one with the um, glove? That is the, the string glove? Yeah. I've when never seen
1: makes me it actually makes me angry. angry. I like
0: what are we doing here? I don't understand that. As someone who works in the world of designing books, it's a, like, like it just makes like me such an important, powerful book, A Garden Glove. I mean, it makes me want to work in the garden or like with a power
1: tool. It doesn't make me want to yeah, read about right. the medievals though. Right. Anyway, if you're listening, if you design that book
0: cover and you're listening, then call us. <laughs> Let's make some changes Do better. To better. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Where are you going to say that? Don't be put off by the number of proper names in that book. I say that, and I'm like, that's going to be – it's going to be off-putting when you come across Boethius and you're like, who's Boethius? I can't remember who Boethius was. It's just worth plowing through because it's such a – Well, then you can read Josh Gibbs' How to Be Unlucky.
2: Well then you could look it up on Wikipedia with all of our modern conveniences that you're so <laughs> avidly defending a few minutes
1: ago, Tim. <laughs> any other like titles Wikipedia.
0: that people should like I'm gonna go to I really like Wikipedia. Uh, oh, I think it's great. Do a good
1: deep dive. Um is there any other titles that's worth worth turning to?
2: Um I, th- I mean that's kind of the standard. Uh, there's a lot that's very, I think more academic than what Tim than, than Lewis's book. I think Lewis's is the most accessible one I've ever read. It's just that the problem is that these are such foreign ideas um, that uh, and foreign sources, um, and Lewis goes into the sources, but he doesn't, it's not an academic treatise, which most of the other things I've read about medieval cosmology are more academic than the discarded image. I think that's the easiest one.
1: What about, have you guys read um, Michael Ward stuff? Planet Narnia.
2: Oh yeah. The, the seven Michael heavens Ward's and the imagination
1: great, of C.S. Yes. Lewis.
2: Mm-hmm. He just, and um the, what's the one about the, um, maybe it is the Seven Heavens, but he just came out with a new one yeah. that I picked up but I haven't yet opened. It's in my stack.
1: Oh, shoot. What is that called? Some
2: listeners are yelling it at the speaker right now. Um, so our apologies After Humanity? For missing it. <laughs> maybe I so. I think the, I think his newest, yeah, he that did. came out in June.
1: After Humanity, A Guide yes. to the abo- which is Guide to the Abolition of Man is his newest. Yeah. Is it Michael Ward's newest? But he's done a lot of really good stuff on Lewis's yeah. understanding of modern cosmology also my dad did do an audio series on cs lewis mm-hmm. and he talked a lot about that That's you can good. just go to that over on the cersei website um hey let's do some final thoughts here because we probably are running out of time what are you guys going to be looking for we'll talk more directly about passages in this book next episode this is kind of a as always like a setup episode and also we just need to remind Tim.
0: Um, I, for next week, I encourage you to read Hush. all of the chapters. I already feel, I already <laughs> feel shame. I already feel shame. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean to, you know, pile on. You're piling on. I just wanted to remind you the weight of sin <laughs> upon my back.
2: Mm-mm. Another late medieval <laughs> allegory. <Ooh>. Um, <laughs> um, I, my, here's my final thought. Is I am. So there's, I don't even know if I should say this because I'm afraid I'd be giving something away. Um, So there's some aspects of the legend of the cockatrice and the weaknesses of the cockatrice that I'm looking for to come up. um, Like how to defeat a cockatrice. Okay. Hold on. Okay. Here's Um, what we're
1: going to do. If you don't want to have some things to look out for here. I'm not going to say no, what you, we'll just tell people yeah. stop listening yeah. now.
0: I want to cuz I, I want to know. Okay. I'd love I don't want to know what they are.
1: Okay. Well, Tim,
0: then you okay, really I will. <laughs> I mean I mean, I don't really have any profound okay. <laughs> thoughts, never mind. So. No. Well, no. No, no. I think some people are going <laughs> to be curious about it and if we give them the option to just cut it off, that's a great solution. Okay. So, Tim, what do you don't have anything you want to add then? No, I'm just look, I'm looking just forward to reading chapter five. <laughs> 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 I'm going to hop off. I'm, really, right, okay. I'm not going to listen. I want Hardy to go forward. Right, well, great. Fine. See you later.
1: <laughs> okay, you guys,
2: Bye, Sam.
1: I I you. Yeah, yeah we, I mean, we will. Are you
0: sure you don't, don't want to hang, hang out? Okay, I'll tell you what. Can... I'm going to mute. I'm going to step into the just other go. room. Just and I'm going to be back on you guys on video in three minutes three okay okay Okay. all right (laughs) this is outrageous okay go ahead
2: (laughs) go ahead he really really does not want any spoilers and they might not even be spoilers i just know that in the legend of the cockatrice only the weasel is immune that weasel is the only creature that's immune to like the wicked and uh eyes like the eyes have this like power to destroy like a basilisk um Mm. And only the weasel is immune to it, and we have a weasel in the first part, which I think is cool. Mm. Named John Wesley, by the way, a reformer.
1: Interesting. Yeah, that's right? I. I did a double take on that one.
2: Yep. And then um, also, the legend of the cockatrice is very clear that the only the only thing that can kill a cockatrice is the crow of a rooster. Okay. So,
1: so, how's that I gonna play out? So, I'm like <clears throat>
2: right, and these like so detailed on the mythology. so I'm looking for like little things like that as we go, I'm looking for like ways that kind of this medieval legendarium is going to come into the story in like really cool and creative ways from this new book. I just think it's awesome.
1: yeah, this is what seems like it's one of those what about where you, has David? this book been your whole life. No.
2: I know, this is like such a Heidi book. Um, So anyway, what about you, David? Since we've lost (laughs) Tim. Just to
1: fill the next minute. (laughs) Have I ever told you (laughs) (laughs) about the time I was scaling Okinawa? Um, Yeah. (laughs) I have not.
2: Is it something you scale, Okinawa? Is that scaling the right verb there? I don't know. Uh,
1: I don't know Okinawa? Anything about Okinawa. Wasn't that a mountain?
2: How are we doing on our minute? Do you have any final thoughts, David?
1: Um, I mean, one of the things that I was really interested in in these first six chapters was the way the characters became characters. Um, hmm. You kind of think of them as like these archetypes from like Chaucer or something, but they did become increasingly more interesting as characters instead of just archetypes or just like symbols. And so you, you see this grumpy rooster changing before our eyes. And like, you know, you see like beauty moves him to courage, for example, it seems like um, th- he is, he's evolving and he's discovering things about himself that he didn't know were p- true or possible. And so I'm interested to see how that continues to evolve because that, even though we have a rooster is such a true, human experience right like that's something that all of us even those of us who are not roosters can can understand um and and...
2: even those of us who are not roosters that's a great clause (laughs) phrase
1: yeah Phrase. Um, let me get that tattooed on my forearm not a rooster (laughs) tim are you a rooster he's not he's
0: not yes i am are we still recording well, we are, but, but you're not. You, why you stopped I, why at some you, point. No, I can't be on this. Wait, that, Heidi's already said her thing.
1: Well, we're still recording, but she's already said her thing. Yeah, yeah. I just got to use the phrase. Some I. What did I say? <laughs> I,
2: even those of us. Oh yeah, who I aren't used the roosters, phrase. Even those who, oh. And then you are. Yeah,
1: even those of us who are not roosters. Yeah, could experience. I was talking about how. There's a, there's a story arc. This, this character, this rooster is evolving. He's changing. He's growing. And he's discovering things about himself mm. that he didn't know were true. And I was saying that even those of us who are not roosters as human beings can understand that. And so that's where this story kind of has opened itself up to me is that it's offering something about, for example, how beauty can change mm. you. You know, how beauty can, can inspire you to courage. Mm. Those sorts of things. He is, he is becoming more self-aware about the things that move him. And so I'm curious to see how that self-awareness continues to evolve, especially because this is a story about pre-human times, right? Like there are not people. And so this notion of this rooster that is becoming more self-aware about himself and the world around him mm. is fascinating to me. Tim, anything else Nothing you want to add else. before we go? Anything Nothing you're looking else. for? Okay. All right. How do you good? Thumbs, Thumbs up. up. All right. Well, next week, Tim's going to do his reading. Uh... and. <laughs> had to drop that in there. Uh, and uh, we're going to discuss part two. And then, of course, like I said, don't forget about the um, Anna Karenina over on the Patreon. We're going to start that in the next couple of weeks. So schedule a uh, schedule on that will be coming out soon. For Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Until next time, happy reading. Someone give us a, a cockadoodle do before we go. Heidi?
0: I can't do it. I can't do it. I keep taking in breath. To do it, and I can't do it. <laughs>